You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs for the Pratt Library, and I'm very happy to see all of you here this evening. Um, this is a, a special evening of poetry, and uh, the poets brought all of their friends, and that's really great. Um, this evening, um, oh, I would like for you to all to pick up a copy of our news and events calendar before you leave. There are lots of them over there. Um, so tonight, to uh, introduce and emcee the program, we're honored to have Rafael Alvarez here. He's, uh, he's the scribe of East Baltimore, and uh, I think everybody here knows Rafael, so please welcome Rafael to the podium. Thank you, Judy. This are more Sun Papers people here than our reunion last week. <laughs> um, I'm here to briefly introduce uh, a quartet of what I would call warrior poets. Strong women with uh, tough skins and, and tender hearts. Um, I know Anne the longest, uh, having worked in the newsroom with her, and uh, I was always, um, it always struck me the difference between the reporter and uh, who you did not want to be a bureaucrat on the other end of that phone call, and, and the poet Anne, um, who uh, carries enough emotion with her to, to fill this room. And uh, she's with her friends uh, Kathleen, Christine, and, and Madeline, and they all four happen to be nice Catholic girls. Um, but to me, in the vein of um, what I consider to be uh, the modern, and you don't have to take this too far, Anne, but the, the modern 21st century American nun, uh, the warrior nuns of, of, of Mother Seton Academy, the ones who were there when everybody else is left. Uh, and they're finding ways to educate kids and, and do that funny trick with the loaves and the fishes, which, uh, which is needed more than ever today. Um, they're going to begin by reading a quartet. Uh, once I'm out of the way, uh, they're going to say more about uh, their actual work and, and how they work together. They all pass through the Hopkins writing program uh, at one point or another and, and became friends and started their writing group in 1991. Um, Christine Higgins uh, started writing poetry in the, in the third grade. Um, she was encouraged by a nun named Sister Hyacinth. Uh, Madeline is going to read about uh, one of the most precious objects she has uh, from her mom, uh, a handkerchief. Uh, what are you going to do for us, Kathleen? Um, it's actually a poem about my mom adjusting to my dad's last illness. So okay. Some other poems. So this quartet obviously is, is wrapped around uh, the influence of mothers. And uh, interestingly, my friend Anne's is uh, 
a poem about her mom called The Lambert's Guide to Birds, but I'm here to tell you that all you need to know about birds is gallows. <laughs> I give you Madeline, Christine, Anne, and Kathleen. Thank you all. I was asked to use the lavalier. Okay. So I'll do that. Is it working? No? I'll use this then. Turn it off. There was a button here. Ah, is it working now? <laughs> Thank you. That one little instruction was not passed along to me. Push the button. Okay, so a little bit about the structure of the book itself and about how things will go this evening. Um, when we realize that our poems over time actually do seem like a con like conversations um, on our various concerns, we, we began to meet and group them into fours. We thought we would kind of group them into to fours, the poems that seemed to speak to each other. And later, when the book began to come together and the groups of poems were set, we um, realized that it would be, actually I think this was Kathleen's idea, um, we chose lines from one of the poems in the group that seemed to capture poetically the theme of the whole section. So there's seven sections here, and this evening we're going to read um, one poem each from just two of those sections. Um, the first section is entitled, She Comes Knocking, which is actually a line from Christine's poem. And the second section is entitled, Testing the Truth of It. Um, and that title is from Kathleen's poem, Marching to Zion. And then after that, what we'll do is we will each read one of our poems um, that, it, that is not, in, not necessarily in the book. Um, so that's what we'll close with. So I'm going to begin by reading um, my poem, um, Handkerchief, which is the first poem in the section entitled, She Comes Knocking. Handkerchief. At the funeral of a colleague's wife, I'm surprised to find it folded neatly in the side pocket of my bag. Tissue-thin cotton, machine-scalloped edge, printed with flowers that could be jonquils if they weren't so impossibly blue-green. No doubt manufactured in the 50s, but pressed upon me not long ago by my mother, who found it too pretty to leave behind in the consignment shop, who must have carried it home, washed it, laid it to dry against the side of the tub, and ironed it into the soft and perfect square smelling mildly of soap, which I hold against my cheeks now, blotting the tears." I'm going to hand this to you and push the button. Mm -hmm.
Hello, everyone. Desire. My mother calls again today. A softness in her voice, a caress in her hello. I've been waiting a lifetime to hear. Her mind is emptying itself like a pocketbook. No more petty grievances, dirty gloves on Sunday, wrinkled skirts, unpleated shirts, my strand of hair that always fell without a bobby pin. No more ritual of criticism. From 200 miles away, she asks, have I eaten my dinner? And how is my husband, Kevin? I picture his name written next to mine in the address book. No pencil note to tell her. Before this, she never cared. I have built up a fortress against the injustices. And finally, she comes knocking. We'll get this lavalier thing down. How's that working? Um, So if you were counting when Raphael said we started writing together in 1991, we've lived through a lot in those 26 years, and I think just the time of life that these mother poems capture um, is a nod to that. My poem is called Late Season, She seems eager for me to prune the buddleia, still sporting a few grape brushes and butterflies. But let your father show you how. Her voice trails off. This last Sunday of summer, the shadows lengthen into the cooling air. Since August, the list of tasks has multiplied. Deadhead the hydrangea, Cut back the leggy rhododendron. Snip the last flowers. Prepare for spring. As if she weren't about to lose her love of six decades. The headstrong boy who showed up at the stage door to punch out her leading man for an unscripted kiss in the high school senior play. The one posing in the Muscle Beach photos composer of musical parodies, husband into whose arms she'd swoon in the kitchen when we kids were not looking. Now, making room for his hospital bed in the den, she clings to old play programs, poems, tokens of all she feels falling out of reach. These days, she's rehearsing new roles, nurse, attendant. In her dreams, she's furious as the squirrels hiding what they must preserve before the coming frost. Thanks for coming, everybody. Lambert's Instant Guide to Birds. She sees them most mornings alight on the weeping cherry, cardinal and nuthatch, 
catbird and indigo bunting, birds of town, regular visitors to yards and parks, suburbanites, just like her. She, she spies them from the kitchen window, and unlike the old days, she has time to notice them now. Goldfinch or warbler and the wren, not Carolina or common house, but Bewicks, with the white eye stripe and a powerful clear song that would make even the most attentive wife turn off the vacuum cleaner. She's been studying them quietly in between spoons of oatmeal, following their hops, one branch to the next, jotting down the colors and markings. A backyard birder at 83. She now explains her day according to Mr. Audubon. If this were her yard, birds would fill the chestnut tree they had planted in 73 after Agnes uprooted the magnolia. She would see the winter moon most nights it was full and swoon to lemon blossoms in summer. If this were her yard, she would know when to water the roses and clean the barbecue. If this were her yard, she would know where she lives. Um, the next section we're going to read from is called Testing the Truth of It. And I think what you basically need to know is um, the section is basically about bearing witness. Uh, and in some ways, uh, it covers sort of the cities or the places that are familiar to us. View interrupted from the land. There is light, more of it, though gray and ashen, plumes filling the cathedral of the air, now a canyon, negative exposure, twin shadows replaced by light, no fixed address. This way and that, easy to lose your bearings at Canal and Sixth, a view clear south to the river from the sea. Boarding the ferry, Wall Street bound, suits at the rail, gulls circling in the haze, their cries overtake the roar of engines, a droning engine on approach, not a word. To a man, not a word. Uninterrupted view, interrupted. In the glare of the sun, the Empire State Building is what you see. From the air, a smoldering heap, the color of ash, timbers of steel, debris piled high, remains of the day everlasting. The eye catches on a crane draped in red, a tall building, red-roofed. To the east, green leafy treetops. At the edge, a marble blue river and the long white wake of a ferry. Empty pockets, and this is dedicated to Lance. I think of you without a scent, without a cigarette, 
trouble with your liver and your spleen in this heat without a drop of sweat left to give. I think of you when I slice open the cantaloupe and when I run my fingers through my daughter's clean hair. When soapy water slides across my skin and when I slip into freshly laundered socks. I think of you. I dive into a pool, my arms stretched out to swim. And I think of your need, cheeks hollowed with hunger, head falling forward in sleep, leathery skin, swollen ankles, empty pockets, shoes unlaced. In better times, you could have been a walking Calvin Klein ad, but today, from behind your hospital wheelchair, I see what you see every day. People brushing past you, faces turned away. They cannot know that after I bummed you a cigarette, you struggled to your feet and balanced on one good leg, that you smiled and said, come on, get in, it's your turn. I am uh, really glad that we chose this section because um, I first came to Baltimore in 1989 as a community organizer with BUILD, and uh, Father Joe Muth and Coleman Milling were partners in that endeavor, but a number of the Baltimore Sun reporters in this room would also remember the poem um, in whose memory, um, the person in whose memory this poem was written. Um, I don't write a lot of poems about community organizing. It's not doesn't lend itself to nuance, let's say. Um, but I've written two poems about Reverend Vernon Dobson, who um, was one of the most influential figures for me and for many of us who, um, whom he welcomed to Baltimore. Um, and uh, this poem was actually written before he died, but I rewrote it. Um, to make it a, an elegy. So it's called Marching to Zion uh, in memoriam Reverend Vernon Dobson who just made it to 90, 1923 to 2013. At your funeral, no one's thundering at the injustice of our loss. No one to sling a brass-plated epithet like you from the pulpit, hewn in the movement's resilience, your wit now silenced. My fondest memories kept as photos in sepia, you seated behind your desk, head down as if brooding, before a scathing insight carved six pounds of hubris from some politician's hide, or your voice booming through the congregation's hymnody at a public assembly, marching us to Zion, or imparting your blessed assurance with the heat of a branding iron. This is our story, lest we forget. You knew we'd be testing the truth of it before long. Too much at stake on the streets of Baltimore.
this um, this poem is entitled American <clears throat> excuse me American Cortege. Um, it has a an epigraph um, after Cortege a litany um, by Marcel Dupre. Um, I wrote this poem after hearing um, this piece Cortege a litany. Um, at a funeral, but played on the organ. Um, it, was, it was very moving. Co- American Cortege. Stand now at the curb of time, hand against the heart. The great cortege is passing through this hour of pause. Crane the imagination, impossible to see the head of the line the first to roll heavily past his mother's weeping eyes. This one now, when and where was he lost, this farm boy from Vermont? No time to wonder. The tolling bells, the drums, the bugle, and now he moves beyond our view, all his sweet particulars draped in the colors of the universal. Red for sacrifice, white for innocence and for absence, blue for those dispassionate skies above the battleground. As for the litany, impossible to name them all. Grip the heart then for the crescendo, the weight the unbearable rolling on and through. So we're going to now just, each of us decided to pick a poem that was not in the book to read, and... um, I chose this one, uh, it's called Eyes of the Crab, because I think it kind of, I wanted to talk a little about the group and how we work a little bit. When I started writing this poem, it, um, it, it was sparked by, or what I thought it was sparked by anyway, was the discovery of a new planet or an alleged new planet. And I wrote, like, I think three huge long standards. I was convinced that this poem was this, going to be this three long stanza poem about whatever. And um, I I brought it to our group, and um, we sort of all worked on it together, and uh, in a sense, that's what what happened. Uh, They helped me to revise the poem, uh, and, you know, I mean, you might say, okay, well, you know, revision is part of what you do when you write, and... and, uh, you know whether you're in a in your studio or whether you're on a bus or wherever you decide to revise your poems, but I think that um, having the uh, um, Kathleen and Christine and Madeline work on this poem with me, uh, they know me and they know my work so well that actually this conversation took place and and as a result of it, you see what hap- what happened to the poem. Uh, Eyes of the Crab. Object moving through space. 55 Cancri D. 
star in the constellation Cancer, dragging five sibling planets bathed in watery clouds. We are only two, running in the starry dark, away from the Cancer house where we sat up with our mother, talking, talking until she dozed off from the morphine. Rocks fall to earth, celestial disruption. Stones placed on a headstone, two sibling planets skittering backwards, trying to recover, trying to align. Um, this is actually the opposite. This is a poem that these guys haven't seen yet. Um, <laughs> so I imagine it, a year from now it's going to look different. But I decided to bring it and read it today because I knew that some of my colleagues from Catholic Relief Services would be here. And, um, and it is true that when I've traveled um, overseas, particularly to developing countries, either with St. Matthew's, uh, my parish, or... Bread for the World now with CRS, I find that the experiences that um, you have... Today, Cardinal McCarrick uh, preached at an early morning mass at CRS and talked about how we all belong to each other, and those moments of deep connection to people you've never met are really powerful to me. Um, so this poem is called Dust, and um, it um, honors the people of Mbawa Village in Malawi, where I visited um, with some folks from CRS. Dust. We kick up dust, arriving in our four-by-fours. The women of Balaka district greet us with singing and dancing. In their bright chitangas that celebrate what they have learned about keeping their children health... Sorry. In their bright chitangas, they celebrate what they have learned about keeping their children healthy. Scores of them sit with their babies on blankets, like at a picnic... Only no lush grass, no hampers overflowing with food. Here they feed the little ones from plastic bowls of maize and moringa porridge, first tasting each spoonful to check that it's not too hot. Then Beatrice leads a group of women in white logoed t-shirts who give us a cooking lesson, showing off the hearty dishes they have prepared with ground nuts and locally grown maize, with peanut and cassava flour, relishing parts of the pumpkin we'd throw away. Pumpkin leaf and tomato stew with meatballs, pumpkin blossoms battered into tasty fritters, treats for their children to carry to school, their husbands to the fields or market. The elders exult that Mbawa Village was chosen to lead this effort, one they hope will continue But the women are the stars here, bright and numerous as the descendants God promised to Abraham and Sarah. A circle of multicolored chitangas wraps us into their dance of gratitude, women drumming, women singing, women kicking up the dust with babies strapped to their backs. We are dancing too, our feet following their lead, our hearts their exuberance, buoyed by their hope, 
tempered like iron at the forge. The sight of a line of somber boys playing with an old bike tire beneath a baobab injects a counterpoint into the singing, minor chords of bitterness from dreams denied. Still, the vibration of all that's hoped for lingers in the air, stirring questions why and how and when, persistent as dust. So this poem is called Hungry in Harford County. And the impulse for this poem was reading an article in the Baltimore Sun, thank you, about proposed cuts to funding for children in Harford County who may only eat once a day. And I thought I'd share with you in terms of revision. The first draft of my poem mentioned a certain congressman in favor of such cuts. And Madeline encouraged me to take him out so he didn't spoil the poem. (laughs) So, hungry in Harford County. I wanted to, you know. Uh, If I were there in your county where you are hungry in the morning and hungry in the afternoon, I would bring you raspberries. This would be a deliberate choice over strawberries, more expensive but far more mysterious with their fine little hairs sprouting like an insect. Each student would get one berry served on a paper towel. This would be another expense, but you would get to see how the juice stains a soft paper with spreading pink. I might also bring garlic cloves. I would show everyone how they grow in a cluster, like a nucleus of cells. We would peel the papery thin skin to reveal a bulb so smooth it glistens white in the light and then perfumes the air. We would just sit back and admire. As long as I'm coming to visit, I might as well bring a dozen or so avocados for you to try a gentle green so rich and creamy. We can get some toothpicks to balance the remaining pits, destined to grow strong and steady over glasses of water. So, um, before I read this last poem, um, a little confession. Uh, I came up here and said that um, we were each going to read something that was not in the book. And um, even though I was well prepared, um, Christine and I prepared for the afternoon. She helped me select which of my new poems I would like to read and we practiced and I arrived and I do not have that poem because I (laughs) left it at home and then so I mean so but here's a little thing about the group because when I told the others there was of course this this 
consternation because we all know how that feels. But then right away, it was like, oh, well, you can read something from the from the book. And then Kathleen immediately said, you know, why don't you read blah, 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 because it's upbeat. We need upbeat, which, which is kind of funny because, truthfully, I have a lot of melancholy poems. <laughs> and I, tonight I read the, you know, the, the anti-war poem and the and the dear mother uh, is gone poem. So I'm going to read you something that is not springy because I had chosen a lovely springy poem that actually had May and roses in it. And I'm going to read you something called December 26th, Snowbirds Crossing Over. But it is filled with, I hope, a spring-like feeling. Um, And it is a somewhat religious poem, but that's okay. December 26th, snowbirds crossing over. Oh, the miles of orange groves dropping less than perfect fruit. The ratty palms festooned for Christmas in the rusting trailer parks. The wistful little amusements rusting too. 75 degrees and rising we have arrived. But oh, the wide and coldly flawless sky, that detached blue, beneath which all the warmth seems cowered, pressed against the ground. Whatever lies beyond those spotless clouds isn't glancing down, couldn't care less. Along Route 27, a billboard shouts that Jesus has gone to make a place for us in heaven. Oh, better to think of him right here in Florida, pulling up a lawn chair beside his aging airstream, loving it, loving us. So we wanted to thank everybody for coming. Um, we thought you know, we might have five people here. So we're really happy to see um, our friends and family and um, supporters of poetry, I think, I hope. Uh, we don't know if, if you want to ask us some questions. We're happy to take some. If not, there's food and non-alcoholic drink back there, and, and uh, we invite you to join us um, to have a few refreshments. So. Anyway, and thank you to Judy and to uh, to the Pratt for letting us come and um, sharing our poems with you. We were thrilled to be able to inaugurate the book here because uh, I think we all are big aficionados of the Pratt and of libraries in general. So uh, thank you all. And if you haven't bought your book, there's plenty over there, all signed. So thanks very much. Thank you for coming. Help yourselves, guys. Did you want to thank them? Oh, no, Judy. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I wanted to ask okay. you to talk a little bit more about, um, about how you've worked together over these last 26 years. Yeah. And your process. Who wants to start that one? <laughs> I'll say something. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not sure I need the microphone for this. Uh, Judy asked us to talk about our process. We all laugh. Um, 
There have been other women in and out of the group. Uh, you know, so uh, it, the character of our interaction has changed a lot based, who's, based on who's at the table. Um, and I think probably the reason that the four of us have hung in there, aside from the fact that we all stayed here, basically, and others moved off, is that we've basically just gotten to a point where um, we're not as prickly as maybe we were when we started this process. You know, we all came out of workshops, and so I think our process has really loosened up a whole lot. We used to send poems ahead of time, and we were really well organized about it. And, you know, like, our lives are crazy. Some of us had kids late, some of us have aging parents, and so... The discipline is not always there. Sometimes we meet over tapas or, you know, we do what we can. But I think we've now got kind of a rhythm that I think, as people illustrated, we kind of <coughs> know each other's work and can kind of say, well, Ann, you started out with that great idea about the scientific discovery, but here's what is the real heart of the poem for me. You know, so we kind of help each other dig it out. And... I wouldn't say I, you know, haven't got my feelings hurt a few times where I felt like they didn't really get it, but that doesn't happen very often. So I guess that's what I would say. Trust is the big thing. Well, I was going. I think the thing that I would say is that, um, you know, I think what's held us together is really mutual respect for our work and for the work of poetry. We thought we were doing. I don't know. If, I don't think important is the, necessarily the right word, but it. it it was work we felt we had to do. And the group, even though we had people come and go, the group hung together even when some of us did go off for mm -hmm. times uh, away. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it's we have mutual respect for one another, for the work, and I think we all, how do I want to say this mm -hmm. uh, politely? Um, I think we, we valued the work and our, our relationships more than our individual egos. So while we might have gotten our feelings hurt, I don't know about that, but exactly, um, I think we knew that um, at the end of the day, uh, we were all about improving the work and making it better so that people could appreciate uh, poetry. Rafael? Have any of you considered a four-author memoir of the group for future generations of female poets? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know both Anne and Madeline have worked in long form before. I'm not sure about Christine and, and Kathleen, but... Oh, they, they have. These yeah, guys, I mean, are, it sounds like these guys are ahead of me. Should we tell the funny story about the name of how, the, what, how yeah, we... Yeah, yeah, I think it might be helpful to know that the title, you know, we, we, we had to come up with it quick because there was a, someone at Loyola, I was teaching there for a while, and uh, a student who wanted to do a video and kind of, you know, uh, also immortalize us. And, um, and so we said, well, we have to call ourselves something. So we came up with In the Margins. And at the time, what we wanted to express, which I do think is also has something to do with our longevity, was that no matter what else was going on, this work was important. It was important to each of us and collectively. So we felt in some ways with jobs and children and aging parents and also, you know, illness and grief that there was a way to come together. 
despite all of that, and work, and support each other, you know, as each one of us was going through one particular trial or another. And so we saw it as we're getting it done, even if it's, you know, in the margins, we're, we're, we're persevering, you know, and then it struck us that it sounded like in the margins, like, well, you know, just marginalia, not really important. Um, but we stuck, we stuck with it as the title for the book because we felt we understood, as lots of uh, poets and women poets must feel, you just have to carve out time, uh, no matter what else is going on, no matter what else is Steve. So you've drawn inspiration from observation, like a new planet or Harvard County. You've drawn inspiration from family matters. Does anybody want to talk about whether one or the other is more difficult for you and why? Is it harder to write about family or harder to write about things that are distant? I, I would say for me, I'm, I'm probably, of all of us, I'm the least family-oriented poet. I, I think most of my poems came from um, places I've been and observations I've made and places I've lived. And I mean, there came a point when we when I got home from overseas. I think I've, I said to these guys, I don't know what to write about anymore. I'm, I, I'm, I, you know, I had a child late in life. I can think of like two poems I've written about that boy, uh, and um, and I think it's it. it uh, you know, when you are the witness or the observer, I think in some ways that you have an easier job than if you are trying to really get at what's motivating you from your own personal life and to be objective in a sense about it so that that experience translates to other people. But, but my colleagues have, have, have written a lot about... Well, I guess I would say that early in my career as a poet, I was, I was described, I wrote a lot in the local newspaper in the little poetry column, and I was definitely a mommy poet or a <laughs> domestic poet. And I, I, you know, I didn't, I kind of took pride in that. But I, I, I think over time, I think we get a different story from each one of us, but I think for me, um, being in the group and actually developing, I, I have become that side of me that really wants to be the witness poet and to to deal with um, you know what I know of war for example and, and, and come getting that across I think I was able to actually use that core of home to build build on that and I, I, I appreciate having had this I think longevity has really helped the longevity of our group because like like Anne and Kathleen both said already Christine too that we've been together so long that when I when I was ready to write the more witnessy kind of poems, I they knew me they knew my work. You know the one challenge I would say about us being together a long time is we know our we know our histories, and so when we're trying to critique the poems and work through them, we kind of some of us we know the backstory in a way, and we have to sort of push against knowing the backstory yeah. to know to be able to de deliver the kind of critique that will help the poem for someone who knows nothing about us and i think that's that's been hard you know uh, in a sense 
for us mm -hmm. to get past that. I, um, some of you who are Maryland, Baltimore people will know the name of Lucille Clifton, um, great poet who lived for a long time here in Baltimore and who I was privileged to have some interaction with far away, like usually in California at a writing boot camp. But um, she used to say, what does the poem want? And, man, I love that, you know? And so I think we try to do that for each other is not to just say, what does Anne want to say, but what does the poem want? What does this poem want? And to try to, you know, help the poem live in the world beyond the cocoon of, you know, what we might bring to it. And I think we've, you know, done fairly well with that. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing that you may have picked up a little bit in this room, but I think you'll get more, those of you who bought the book, <clears throat> bland self-promotion, um, is that we really, our styles and our voices are actually very different. I don't think you heard some of the divergence in this room tonight, but in terms of formal, informal, yeah. you know, whatever, we, we have very distinct voices, and yet we really are obsessed by some of the same <coughs> things. I think, you know, the longer we live, the more obsessed we are about yeah. something. Yeah. That's true. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, well, thank Let's you. Let's celebrate. podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.